The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. Well, today... The first week of first Thursday in February, we're starting again the Gift of Exoneration series. I think it's very appropriate since this is the month of Valentine's Day and love uh, that we might feature uh, this really important program. You might have never heard the name of the man who's my guest today. His name is John Artist. You probably don't even know his name, even though his story's been told in books and movies. But he was a man who was charged and convicted of a triple murder in Patterson, New Jersey along with Reuben Hurricane Carter, 1966, stood trial twice and served 15 years in prison. Good morning, John. Good morning, Francie. How are you? I'm great, and thank you so much. I know you're a long way away. You're, are you in Toronto? Uh, no, no, not at the present. I'm in Hamilton, which is about um, 40 minutes away from Toronto. Okay, so you're a long way from California, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. And, you know, John, so much was made about Reuben Carter because he was already a celebrity fighter. But, John, I think you're the unsung hero. And people, I want, I want primarily why I want people to hear what you have to say today. Um, so let's, let's just start with you were 19 years old. Yes. How did this all come about? Uh well, it's um, initially I I had I didn't know Reuben at all except the fact that he was a boxer from Patterson. Um, but ironically enough, um, we knew uh, a family, um, and I was friends with the son of that family, and he was uh, naturally the a friend of of the adults. Mm-hmm. And on a chance meeting one night, I happened to be there when he came over to visit. Um, and we were introduced just briefly. And he was there a short amount of time. He left. And uh, a week later, I happened to want to go to another part of, of Patterson. And I was walking and he went by and I, I, I hailed him. And he pulled over and I asked him, did he remember me? He says, yeah. And I told him, you know, can I get a ride um, to this, to a very popular black club at that time that was called the Night Spot. Mm -hmm. So that's how we got to um, meet each other and or be in each other's company. Well, you know, now see, I didn't know that you didn't really know him. That makes it 
this even just more amazing, John. You were pressured, greatly pressured, to turn on on Reuben to save yourself. Well, yes. Well, I was a, a very um, high-profile uh, high school athlete. Okay. In Patterson. Um Track being my better sport, but I starred in football and basketball. Um, and I won a scholarship um, to Colorado State. Hmm. Uh, and I knew a lot of the police officers because I attended school with their children. Some of them I hadn't even had dinner in their homes with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so when this event happened on that night, they were telling me to clear the the dark cloud from over my head and tell them what I knew. And I told them, I don't know anything. I don't know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. So they simply said, look, just say that Reuben Carter committed this crime and we'll let you go. So why, why do you think they were after Reuben? Was there, was some, they had some kind of ax to grind with him? Yes, definitely. Well, Reuben was a, was a civil rights basic uh, activist and he spoke out against slum lords and uh, pr- police brutality, mm. in which uh, law enforcement treated uh, the popular the population of color, uh, such so. And he, being a a celebrity, he was more affluent than pretty much any other black there in Patterson, and he flaunted it. Um, did he? Yeah, he did. You know, yeah. with uh, flashy cars and was always well-dressed, natalie-dressed and such. Um, and uh, he had been known. I mean, they knew him. So uh, with that that type of... Uh, yeah. So he, he was kind of in their face. He stayed in their face, yeah. yeah. yeah now, so, uh, John, tell me about Patterson. What kind of a town is Patterson? Patterson is an uh, old, deteriorating uh, industrial city. It's it's a valley town. Um, the Passaic River runs through it. Most notably, the Passaic Falls, uh, where Colt had a factory making uh, weapons, huh. and they they used the power of the falls um, for electricity and such like that. But it's it's hilly. Um, not a very great town. Uh, it was deteriorating when we got there, and is much more so at at this point. I see. Okay. And and about how large a town is it? Oh, I would say five hundred thousand, perhaps. Okay. Okay. So so they were already kind of after him, I guess, and you just got caught up in the middle of it. But still, I think it's really just phenomenal, John, that. Um, you could have. I mean, this happens all the time. Happens all the time. You have two young men or three young men that have been charged with a crime, and and the prosecutors put pressure on one of them, who they see as the weakest link, maybe, to um, spill on the other two or the other one. And you did not do that. No. You, you could have easily. They could have fed you the information. Well, they were kind of like feeding me information, but however, you know, I have I had lived a very organized and disciplined life from my parents and 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 all of my athletic involvements and such. So, um, 
my upbringing was um, basically from my mother, you tell the truth. And no matter what the consequence <laughs> is, you pay the price, but you tell the truth. So I had no, no, ab, you know, hesitancy in telling the truth, but um, I wasn't stupid either. Yeah. Um, I did know that from from movies and TV and such that even if if you you flip on someone or state someone else, you have to in, involve yourself. I mean, that night um, we were taken to the hospital. If you, if you saw the, the the hurricane, we were um, stopped and taken with a, a police caravan to the scene of the crime, made to get out of the car, standing amongst a crowd of people who had gathered, uh, taken away in a paddy wagon, uh, taken to police headquarters, taken to the hospital to be viewed by one of the surviving victims, and where the question was posed to that to that victim, uh, are these the two men that <laughs> shot you? And, yeah. And uh, I, I never heard of uh, police procedure where they take you to the scene of the crime before they take you to police headquarters and definitely not to have you confronted by a victim on, on the same evening. The gentleman nodded, uh, shook his head negative. I mean, they had a, they had a uh, description that the men, the two men, were two tall, light-skinned Negroes with thin pencil mustaches weighing between 180 and 200 pounds, standing approximately six feet to six feet one. Reuben being extremely dark-skinned with a bald head and a full goatee and mustache. Um, and buffed out. <laughs> yeah, and buffed, definitely. Yeah. Buffed. And myself, we look like Mutt and Jeff. Uh-huh. Um, I weighed 180, but I at 19, I didn't shave. I don't shave today, and I'm 69, so... There was no hair on my face, so from the onset, we didn't fit the description. And I bet you were a pretty skinny guy at that age, too. Well, I was a solid 175. Were you? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was constantly running. I ran in national AAU meets. Um, I ran in the Milrose Games in, in Madison Square Garden. Wherever there was a track meet and hurdles were set up, I was there. Mm-hmm. Well, so what about... Uh, did you have any alibi witnesses? What happened with the trial? Well, we oh, certainly people knew me. I had a reputation of being a very good dancer, and I would go to various dances and win contests and things of that nature. Um, and people knew me. I mean, I couldn't go anywhere in Patterson that people didn't know me, and they knew my father and they knew my grandfather. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I was a popular kid coming from the from the hood. You know, I, I did well in school. I was an honor roll student and that nine, whole nine yards, and, and a star athlete. So when I, in my neighborhood, I was sort of like the poster child for other kids to follow. Mm-hmm. Um, and people came up and, and, and spoke on my behalf and said, you know, not, not that kid, you know, not him. You know, I was a Boy Scout. I was... Um, you know, I was involved in my church. I was a good athlete. I never got into trouble. I didn't hang out. I didn't drink. I didn't do any of those negative things, you know. And uh, it was it, the, the pressurized racial environment was that uh, the prosecutor proposed that anyone who was 
testifying on our behalf were lying and that only the people that were testifying for the state were telling the truth. Mm. Common, common technique, actually. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So um, now I know investigators who are listening to this program are going to want to know, did you have an investigator and did they, did they actually go out and do a thorough investigation? Uh, no, initially um, there was no one. Ruben was the one who uh, secured uh, attorneys for, for, for both of us. He got Ray Brown out of Jersey City, um, who was involved with the NAACP uh, defense fund. Uh-huh. Um, teens, rather. And um, I didn't know who to contact. My dad didn't know, know who to contact. Uh, so Ray Brown was the was the one that came to 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 be our counsel, um, but um, in investigation we I had very little money. My dad had very little money. That was my goal to secure a some type of assistance so that I would be able to attend college. But Reuben had money, mm-hmm. uh, so there I we didn't have any real investigators to go out and to investigate the case until years later. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I'm looking at something that is, is says uh, the other side of the story. I don't know if you've ever seen this or not. It says Carter and artists gave conflicting stories about the night of the murder. Have you ever seen that article? Yeah, you're talking about Cal Deal. Okay. That's got to be Cal Deal. He was a reporter at the time and for Patterson Paper uh, and allegedly was around uh, police headquarters on the night that they took Ruben and I to police headquarters um, where we were questioned for 17 nonstop hours and given a lie detector test on the same night and we passed. Uh, and you did he, pass. Yeah, we passed. And well... Uh, Sergeant McGuire, who was the state trooper uh, polygraph expert, stated that if he found anything that indicated that I had anything to do with the crime, that he would do his utmost to see that I got the electric chair. Great. Yeah. <laughs> that gave you a real warm, fuzzy feeling. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> but he didn't find anything. No. No, and he was just there, and and he's had a vendetta, basically, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, literary uh, freedoms or, or liberties, rather, to, to write whatever he thinks was w- what occurred or whatever, and, and, and totally erroneous, and that's what he's planted. He planted it then, he crucified us in the papers in 1966-67, and after he retired, he, he put up a complete website uh, to state really uh, what his opinion, certainly. But I mean, you know, uh, uh, to say conflicting stories, you know, as an investigator or oh, yeah. any, any, any John Q. citizen, if I ask you to give me a total description of everything you did two weeks ago on a certain day and to describe or give me exact times when you looked over your shoulder or walked out I of know. a door yeah. and stuff, that's totally impossible. Who remembers that? If it has no uh, real uh, paramount m- meaning to you, um, 
you can't do that. So that's where it comes up. If you think back, you try to say, uh, well, it was this time, it was that mm-hmm. time I went this, but it might not be in chronological order. Hence, they come up with conflict. Yeah, for sure. I mean, oh, I can't, I wouldn't be able to remember yesterday. So I don't know about a week. <laughs> so, <laughs> that would be tough. <laughs> well, okay. So, um, so this says actually um, there that the alibi witnesses admitted to lying um, about ten years later. Is, well, is that true? Is that a false statement? Well, I don't know if they lied or not. Um, but one of the um, persons that was supposed to testify as an alibi witness for Reuben turned was a female who in turn married a a detective of. Uh, Patterson and and after that marriage, uh, she changed her story. Really? But a lot of threats by uh, the police that they would make them accessories if they if they were to stick to their stories and such. Wow, and then, and this says actually, the recantations were obtained by a black investigator, Prentice Thompson, who was working for Eldridge Hawkins, who's an no. assemblyman. No, no. No, it was gotten by Fred Hogan, who was a white guy, who <laughs> who was an investigator for the public advocate's office in, in New Jersey. He's the one that got the the recantations. Eldridge, Eldridge Hawkins, uh, they had a special furlough for me. They brought me home to my dad's house out of prison one day, and I met him in my father's home. And he prefaced the, the, the meeting with, we know that you didn't kill anyone. However, we think that you either knew about it or you were there. And if you would just sign a statement to say that Reuben Carter was the one who committed the crimes, we'll have you out of prison by Christmas. And this was already mid-December. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Now, okay, so- this boggles my mind. So you were already in prison. What prison were you in at that time? At that time, I was in Leesburg. I had, um, after a riot, I saved the lives of several guards when the guys were taking a vote to decide whether they were going to kill them or let them go in 1971 in Rural uh, Yeah, uh, I read about that. Yeah, yeah. so the, they couldn't let me go home, but the, the Department of Corrections permitted me to attend Glassboro State College. Uh, and put me in full minimum, so I was I could leave the prison um, with minimal supervision um, and and return. But that's where I was at that time. Okay, and they actually got you out of prison. Now, I never even heard of that before. They yes. actually <laughs> took you home. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they took me home, and I walk in and I see this guy. So I told him I'm not signing anything. So he asked me, will you take a lie detector test? I says, well, I took one 10 years ago. I'm not taking one now. If you want to give anyone a lie detector test, give it to the star witnesses for the state. Yeah. And at this point, you're, you must have been about 30. Is that right? Um, 29 and 30. Yeah, 76, yeah. I, I, yeah 29. I, I would have been 30 and, and, and 76. So what did he do when, after you said you wouldn't, weren't going to sign a statement? Well, I told him, well, see, the governor at the time was Governor Byrne, and he had been a prosecutor in Bergen County at the time of our trials, and he went to bat for the two-star witnesses, 
uh, Bello and Bradley, and the, who had charges pending, armed robberies and such, in, in Bergen County. And he told the, the presiding judge at that time that they were instrumental in, in the convictions of Reuben and myself, and so they got lenient citizen, uh, sentences. Hence, uh, he went on to become governor. Oh, gosh. Of okay. New- so, um, all right. This, my goodness, this is just disgusting. Um, so, so you refused to sign the statement, and now you're not only going against <laughs> the state, but the governor, the assemblyman, and... Um, and the private investigator. And the private investigator in the whole county. <laughs> and the whole state, basically. And the whole state. Oh, my goodness. So, so then what happened after that? Well, I told him I wasn't going to sign anything. You know, you, if you know that I didn't kill anyone, as you stated, then you take that back to the governor. But I'm not signing anything that says that Reuben Carter committed any crime. I'm not doing that. You know, I told you that before, and and, and I'm telling you now, uh, I'm not doing that. So I refused. Actually, I got pretty irate, and I told him, you made me miss a day from from my classes in college to come up here to listen to nonsense. You know, I says, I'm not signing anything, and don't ever talk to me again. Wow. Did anybody ever try to talk to you again? No, not after that. No, no. Well, you know, they thought I was the weak link. That was a theory that I'd had um, past my ears that they thought I was a weak link and get that kid and and he'll he'll he's the one he'll point the finger. Mm-hmm. And I tell him not that I'm not lying to to help you. I'm not going to tell a lie. You know, I was raised not to lie, and I'm not going to lie, even if it's it's the peril of my own life. But I'm not going to do that. You do realize how much of an exception you are, don't you? <laughs> really? It was, <laughs> yeah. it was normal for me uh, from my upbringing. I mean, I'm a, I'm a Southerner. I was born in Virginia. You know, I came from um, under the segregated laws of the South when I was a child and moved to New Jersey. But I had great parents, and my mother was the authoritarian. And, um, you know, lying was, was you know... Um, demonstrated to me, anyone, if you tell a lie, you have to have a phenomenal brain to know exactly what lies you told when verbatim. Yeah. When you tell one lie, you have to tell another lie to cover that lie, and eventually you'll, you'll get caught up. Yeah. However, when someone maintains their innocence, the one thing about the truth is that no matter how many times you tell it, it always comes out the same way. Okay. Wow. That's just, well, still, it's just amazing. Because <laughs> the majority of the world do not have the focus so they can see past that first lie. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. You know, but, you know, it's not a protection. It's a hindrance. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So, uh, so you, you went to prison. Um, this must have happened before you were tried the second time. Uh, yes, that, 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 the, the uproar started when Ruben wrote his book, uh, The 16th Round, which, of course, uh, it got uh, Muhammad Ali and, uh, and Joe Frazier and, and mm. a whole lot of celebrities mm-hmm. uh, involved. Um, Bob Dylan uh, wrote a song 
uh, the hurricane. Uh, they were having rallies in uh, Madison Square Garden and, and the Houston Astrodome, and they raised a substantial amount of money uh, for us to pay uh, our, our attorneys and, and such. So, And uh, you were always included in that? Yes. Well, Ruben and I will be joined at the hip for, for eternity. Right. Uh, yeah, for sure. But but also, I think it's important that he did not abandon you either. No, well, they were trying to kill both of us. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was the whole point. I mean, th- that's the, the first and last time I've ever been deathly afraid was sitting in a courtroom waiting for 12 strangers to come back who, who've only heard portions of of what my life was right. and uh, and what I'm a, I was accused of and making a decision on my life. Actually, I was arrested the day before my 20th birthday. Oh, my goodness. I was arrested October 14th. My birthday's October 15th. I was booked at 12.05, October 15th. Happy birthday, huh? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So uh, so then how did it come about that you had the second trial? Uh, we got the second trial. That's when Fred Hogan came in with the recantation hearings and, uh, well, the recantation statements. Uh-huh. But the state, in responding to a variety of uh, legal motions and petitions to the court, were divulging information that they alleged that didn't exist during the, during the time of our first trial. So, um, for instance, there was a tape where um, Lieutenant Simone was questioning Bellow, and you could hear him promising Bellow that nothing will happen uh, to you, even though he admitted to breaking and entering into a, a factory that same night and going into the bar uh, and ri- rifling the cash register with people lying dead and wounded uh, in the bar. Oh, wow. So those things gave us ammunition, and that's what uh, prompted us to uh, that tape mainly uh, the first time um, that uh, we were entitled to a new trial. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now did you have the same lawyer the second time? No, the second time around we had uh, Louis Steele and Myron Beldock who just passed away in, um, in New York uh, two days ago mm-hmm. uh, from out of New York. And, and because they were Jewish guys uh, and coming into an Italian city of Patterson, uh, they were really, really uh, disrespectful to them, to say the least. Okay. Well, all right. And so both trials, about how long were they? Six weeks. Each one of them was six weeks? Six weeks. And the second trial was six days a week for six weeks. Oh, my goodness. And they came back with a verdict of guilty again. Yeah. In the first, in the first trial, it took them uh, four and four and a half hours to, to reach a verdict after six weeks and a little over four hours in the second trial. Hmm. And, and you must have been really hopeful that they were going to come back with a, a verdict of not guilty the second time around. Oh, I was, I was elated. I, yeah. I can't wait to get my day in court again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it was kind of deja vu because at the second trial, the prosecutor was was permitted um, 
to to put into to the record that it was a racially um, it was a racial revenge motive he was allowed to use um, hmm. at the second trial when there was never a motive established in in, in the first trial, uh, and and he was a, he got away with that. And so it was three white guys. Um, who were these three white guys, and did they ever find who actually did it? No, no. Well, they were convinced that it was Ruben and, and, and myself. Yeah. Um, they never looked for anyone. They still won't look for anyone. And even though they were found guilty of prosecutorial misconduct, um, where Judge Sarakin in the federal court ruled that it's a case that should have never gone to trial. It had at its, its basis an appeal to racism rather than reason and concealment rather mm-hmm. than disclosure. Sure. And, you know, to keep... Ruben in jail at that time, I was already paroled, to keep him in jail one day longer would be a crime as heinous as the crimes in which he was accused. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Just amazing. And and who were these three white guys? I mean, what did you know? What did you find out about them? Oh, well, they were, well, Bello and, and Bradley were, were two juvenile criminals. They had been going back and forth to reformatories and such. Um, when we were found guilty, they got a get-out-of-jail-free card, whereas no matter what they did, they wouldn't send them to prison because uh-huh. their theory was if they came to prison, friends of Ruben and myself or uh, either me or Ruben would, would harm them, which uh-huh. is ludicrous, but um, that's what I didn't know them. And um, Bello identified me allegedly by my by my high school yearbook, which which carried my middle name, and no one knew my middle name except for my immediate family. I always just used my my middle initial, which was A. Mm-hmm. My middle name was Arnold, and I thought that was a sissy's name, so I never. <laughs> Arnold artist, you know, <laughs> when she was angry with me. Yeah, John Arnold, <laughs> artist. You know, I knew I was in trouble, but he identified me as John Arnold artist. He didn't go to high school with me. I didn't know that guy. He'd never been in high school, not in Patterson Central. I didn't know him at all. Mm-hmm. And uh, But that's how he identified me, as though he was one of my close, intimate associates. Yeah. Amazing. You know, and Bradley, I mean, yeah, Bradley, um, he had a list of armed robberies using the same caliber of weapons that the people in that bar had been shot and, and, and murdered with, um, of which Burns was able to get him uh, all of those sentences run together. I think he got five years for, for all of that. And, uh, you know, it was just, to me, it was just too coincidental that... He's got charges of armed robbery using the same caliber guns, and they happen to allegedly be over there breaking into a factory, but you have people that are being shot and killed in a bar. To me, it was just too coincidental. Yeah. Now, were you actually uh, facing the death penalty, John? Yes, that was the first trial. That was the first trial. The first trial. First trial, you got the death penalty. Well, yeah, they were seeking it after, you know, of course, after we were convicted and went back for a second trial, they can't change um, the the sentence. All they can do is reinstate it. Okay, so 
how did it happen that the death penalty was taken off the table? Well, it wasn't taken off. Oh, the it, table. it still wasn't. Okay. Okay. At the first trial, but the second trial, it was just a new trial for the, we were seeking the, the, the not guilty verdict. Yeah. Okay. You know, however, uh, at the first trial, one of my, uh, my attorneys, Harold Cassidy, uh, interviewed some of the, the jurors and the jurors stated to him, we had them guilty before we even went into the hmm. room to deliberate. However, the problem that we had is that we didn't want to kill the kid. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. And they even told him that. That's amazing. Yeah. Years later, they didn't tell him that, but yeah, yeah, years later. Years later. So the only reason that we're alive is the fact that I was a squeaky clean, (laughs) you know, goal-oriented type of kid um, with no record, no arrest, or any type of trouble with law enforcement. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that saved um, our lives. Otherwise, had I been a... Uh, an adult with with any type of record, Ruben and I both would have been put to death. Interesting. So now, were you and Ruben in the same prison the whole time? No, not the whole time. Not I, the whole time. The when we first got there, we were in the same prison for six months, and then I left that prison because it, it was suggested that I would fare better in another prison, Rawway, because of the population there being more. Uh, of my age and such. So I went there and then I didn't see him again for three years. And uh, we were together for uh, 71, 70, 71, 72. And then in 73, I transferred out to another prison uh, at the benefit uh, of me because of having saved the lives of these prison guards who oh. in the 1971 riot in Rawway. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So then how did it come about that uh, it came up again so that you were exonerated? How did that happen? Oh, well, because the United States Supreme Court agreed with Judge Sarakin uh, with the prosecutorial misconduct of of the Passaic Valley police and and prosecutors. So um, they stated in the interest of justice this that the case should not be retried. That's what the United States Supreme Court. Okay, so so let me understand what happened here. So you must have had after the second trial, you must have been appointed or somebody hired an appellate attorney. Is that right? No. Well, Fred Hogan, who was an investigator, got the public uh, Stanley Vaness, who was the public advocate director, to allow him to investigate the case. And and take any steps necessary to uh, assist us. And Fred was the one who got Jack Noonan um, uh, as an attorney and one of his associates. And Jack became a federal judge who's now retired in Florida. Um, and, and that's how that came about. We weren't able to solicit anyone. Okay. All right. So, but but did the um, did the exoneration come through? Um, of, let's see. I guess what they would have to do is they have to file with the state of Pennsylvania first, and that be denied, and they took it to the U.S. Supreme Court. Is that how it happened? The, yeah. The state. Okay. When okay. Ruben was released, uh, see, a writ of habeas corpus was granted to Reuben in 1985. Okay, so it was done through a writ. Okay. 
Right, and Ruben got out. But of course, the state of New Jersey appealed all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. And they were denied all the way up and even including the United States Supreme Court. And with the statement of, you know, that a lot of the things that they had used at both trials were thrown out. So they didn't really have any any further evidence other than Bella and Bradley, who had recanted. So there was mm. no evidence. There okay. was no evidence, no okay. weapons, none of that. Okay. Okay. All right. So, oh my goodness. You know, you know how seldom that ever happens? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It has to be less than one half of 1% or something uh, for the uh, U.S. Supreme Court to rule that way. Yes. Yeah, because they only listen to perhaps 1% of all the cases presented to them every year. My goodness. So that was way before the Innocence Project. Yes. You guys were on your own fighting just tooth and nail all by yourselves. Yes. Yes, and with whatever little help we could get. Hmm. Amazing. So I know, John, you did so many things when um, when you were in prison, even as a positive influence besides saving the guards' lives. Um, I understand you were the vice president of the Lifers Group at Rahway. Yes. Now, what is that? What is the Lifers Group? Well. The lifers group are, are men that had 25 years or more in order to become a member. And um, what we did, we developed a program that we won an Oscar for, which is called Scared Straight. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, well, that was us. At first, I worked on the stage with the students, that, uh, children that came in there. And then, of course, I became vice president. So we did all the things uh, that we could to assist all lifers uh, who, or anyone who had 25 years or more. Mm-hmm. So those are the kind of things that, that we did. Okay. And then uh, you also, uh, so that, was that the juvenile awareness program that you helped with? Did that come out of the lifers group? Yes, that's okay. what, it, what the program was, juvenile awareness. Scare Straight was when... Uh, Arnold Shapiro arrived from Hollywood. He's the one that came up with the the catchphrase of mm. "scared straight." Yeah, it was it was pretty cool. I remember that very well. Um, and then when you got out, you created your own uh, organization called Creating Youth Awareness. Yes. And you did that in Pennsylvania as well. Oh, not Pennsylvania. I've never been in Pennsylvania. Oh, am I? I'm sorry. It's not Pen- I keep saying Pennsylvania. It's New Jersey, isn't it? Right. Okay, and so that was in New Jersey? Yeah, I started it in New Jersey, and then I left New Jersey because the atmosphere just wasn't agreeable to me. Um, And I went back to Virginia where I was born. Okay, all right. John, we do need need to take a break this time (laughs) since we missed the last one. So we'll be right back. That was John Artis. Stay tuned. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. I'm just having a great time today talking to my guest, John Artis. John was exonerated after being convicted twice and serving too many years in prison to count. So, John, when you were out and you created this uh, or you started this Creating Youth Awareness, and um, that was what was your purpose on that with that group? Uh, well, that was to to uh, address the the behaviors that that youth were starting to adopt. Uh, especially in relationship to to gangs and drug selling and and mayhem and shootings and the violence in the street, uh, and I didn't want to see another child have to go through the same thing that I went through at the age of nineteen. Mm-hmm. Um, so, regardless of what they saw or heard, I just wanted to continue to the extension of what I, I had begun while I was in Rawway, and that you know prisoners is nothing and nowhere, and it's it's not anywhere you want to be. I wouldn't wish prison on my worst enemy. Right. No kidding. And does that group still exist, or did it, uh, you went on to other things? Well, I went on to other things. Um, I, I started getting involved with uh, innocence uh, projects. Uh, Ruben had created AIDWIC, the Association in Defense of the Wrongly Convicted, uh, and later, also, uh, additionally, he created Innocence International. So I would get involved in, in going to prisons and speaking to guys with regard to to those two organizations and such. Mm-hmm. And then didn't, didn't you also work in uh, some juvenile detention centers and group oh, homes and things like that? Oh, my God. I've, I've, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've gone through the whole gambit of juvenile. I worked in a... Um, a residential psych center with 
with children with deviant behaviors who had been molested and in turn were starting to molest. Uh-huh. Um, I worked in group homes um, for youth, and uh, yeah, I did. I worked in, in Norfolk Juvenile Detention Center in Norfolk, Virginia. Um, so, yeah, I've kind of like been around when it comes to juvies. So let me ask you, because what I hear is that even peop- even folks that are exonerated uh, have such a tough time getting any kind of a job, you know, because they have to f- disclose where they've been for 15 or 20 years. Um, it, so you didn't have any trouble getting hired at these places? Well, no. no. Well, thanks to, to Denzel and the hurricane. Uh, mm. Denzel Washington you're talking about. At Denzel Washington, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and the film coming out, it, it, it made a lot more people aware of exactly uh, what my life entailed or, or some of the incidents uh, in my life. So, uh, you know, as Americans, we're stuck on that celebrity mm-hmm. bandwagon kind yep. of thing. So that made me unique in that regard, um, you know. But, I, I mean, I'd had a lot of experience in prison. I was the co-chairman of the prisoners, pr- prisoners' representative committee, uh, airing grievances from the population to, to the administration. I was a paraprofessional teacher. I taught adult or basic education um, to men who couldn't read or write. Mm-hmm. I was uh, president of the Junior Chamber of Commerce, JCs, uh, in the institution, uh, and those kinds of things. So, um, I don't know. I I, I think uh, as a Libra, I have some kind of (laughs) charismatic personality or whatever. But I'm I'm totally uh, interested in in being altruistic and and assisting people who, where I can help, I do help. And you, oh my gosh, you have contributed so much. I mean, I mean, you've contributed in your life uh, after being taken out of your life for 15 years more than most people ever do, and oh. it's just incredible. Well, thank you. Uh, it's it just seems to be the right thing to do. Well, and it sounds like you've always done the right thing. I I've got to read this quote from you, John, because I think it it's just. Uh, really compelling. You said, devoid of any evidence or fact, authorities attempted to have me state that Reuben Carter was a murderer to assist in convicting Reuben and sending him to the electric chair for the promise that I would be released. In reality, it would have been, it would have wrongfully convicted two innocent people and sent both of us to our deaths. I refused. Integrity is innate, immeasurable, uncompromising quality. That's such a powerful statement. And, and I have to go back. You didn't even know this guy. He may have been a hero in your community, but you didn't even know Reuben Carter. No. And yet you stood to your beliefs and maintained your integrity for all that time. I just applaud you. Thank you. Yeah, it's yeah. Really, uh, very, really refreshing because, as you know, I believe I – told you earlier today that I uh, work with criminal defense attorneys and we often get confronted with somebody that turns state's evidence, becomes a snitch, ends up with a snitch jacket in prison because they make a deal. Um, And uh, it's, 
it's amazing that you stood your ground. It's, um, and that's why I started out the show. I said you were the unsung hero. Reuben Carter may have been the celebrity, but you're the real hero. Well, thank you. Yeah. I don't see myself as a hero. I, hopefully, I'm, I'm, I just consider myself to be a decent person, you know, uh, a decent human being. And that's all I want to be is a decent human being. Um, but I learned that, you know, the human spirit is stronger than anything that can happen to it. Yeah. So. Well, and, and, you know, to culminate that, you, when you found out Reuben had cancer, you retired. You quit your job. You quit yeah. everything you were doing, and you were immediately on the spot to assist him until his death. Yeah, I was told that he had 90 days to live. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was working at a residential school for boys in Virginia. Um, and when I heard that, I knew Reuben was alone. Um, and and unmarried, so I rushed. I rushed. I, yeah, I just dropped everything and, and and came to Canada, and to be with him for ninety days. But it turned out to be three years, um, uh, uh, until ultimately he passed away two years ago. Uh, mm. uh, on Easter morning, I was sitting at his bedside, huh. sitting at his bedside at four thirty. But he wasn't cognizant of me being there because by that time he was. Uh, receiving uh, morphine injections uh, from a pump, a morphine pump. Um, so I watched him uh, take his last breath. So it's kind of like he always told me, you saved my life um, way back when. Uh, so I felt it only be fitting that I'd be there at the end of his life. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, I'm sure he knew you were there. Oh, yeah. Well, he told me that. He says one, once before when he was still lucid. He, John, I'm glad you're here. And I say, yeah, Ruba, so am I. I'm glad I'm here, partner. Mm-hmm. So, John, what, if, I don't know who's listening to this show. I never know. But what advice do you give to parents, to young people, to even to men who now are out of prison because there's a lot of early releases going on here across the country? What advice would you give? to all these folks? Well, oh God. Um, well, once you're convicted, unlike the theory of, of the Constitution states that if you're, uh, you've committed a crime, that once you've served time, um, you've paid your debt to society. That's a fallacy. It is. A, you're right. It is. That's a fallacy. And, and not unlike the Holocaust victims, you're branded. It becomes a ball and chain. Uh, our society requires that you have to divulge whether or not you've committed a crime or a felony, regardless uh, of your intent once you get out. Um, that the, the road is, is a really, really hard, hard road to travel. A lot of doors will be slammed in your face. But um, I had a football coach, Aubrey Lewis, who instilled in my life a long time ago that you have to have the three D's in your life in order to be successful. Those three D's are drive, desire, and determination. Hmm. And, and as long as you adhere to those, those three issues of drive, desire, and determination, you can't give up. A quitter never wins and a winner never quits. You know, um, but uh, the the climate of our society is that 
there are two two courts that you go through. You go through the court of law and you go through the court of public opinion. Today, it's more a court of a public opinion than it is in law. Mm-hmm. And we have a lot of stereotypic viewpoints that, that people consider you, not like what Dr. Martin Luther King wanted, which was the content of our character uh, and not the color of our skin. Right. So it's, it's kind of frightening, really, uh, that and 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 you know people have to be aware and more careful of what they do, what they say, who they're with, who they associate with, and etc. When you listen, when I listen to a police report or a news report, and and a crime is allegedly committed by a person of color, mm-hmm. it was committed by a black male of medium complexion. <laughs> right. What is medium complexion? I ask. So therefore, they're saying that every black male is a potential suspect. Mm-hmm. But people have to, you know, the the instance of of attacking one another as opposed to camaraderie and cohesiveness is something that we have to to get back to, like the people back in the '60s in the civil rights struggle, our grandparents and and aunts and uncles and parents and such. They stuck together. That's how we got civil rights. And we have to do that now. This this self-mutilation and self-hatred of, of just killing one another simply mm-hmm. because of our complexions is, to me, the most asinine thought process possible. But Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we all see, and I'm out of that era, too, John, of the, uh, you know, to the civil rights era. And, and at the time... We all thought it was going to be different. Yeah. And it's not. No, it's not. It's just undercover more. It's Yeah. It's, it's more subtle, but yes. definitely pervasive. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and we need to stop. I mean, parents need to stop glorifying violence. Mm. Violent, you know, kids today, all they want to think about is a fight. You know, fighting, 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 shooting somebody, hurting somebody. You know, you know, we're going into a, a generation that they're going into schools and just shooting. You know, you know, I, inconceivable for me uh, uh, how that can occur. But yeah. you know, video games. People say no, 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 no. It's yes, 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 yes. Kids get off on having those video games where it's nothing but violence in them. Yeah. You know, yeah. they need to get them away from the TVs and away from all of this technology and get back out and enjoy something more simpler things in life like the appreciation of of, of a book or, or travel or, or seeing nature and things of that nature as opposed to glorifying um you know yeah glorifying the violence yeah, yeah for sure John you know we're at the end of our hour I've, it's I've been it's been delightful talking to you thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your life with us Oh, great. Thank Uh, you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Uh, And thank you to my sponsors, IRB Search and PI Magazine. Don't forget those two entities and support them. And for all of you, join me again next week when we declassify more real stories from real investigators and stories like John's John Artis's story every Thursday morning. It's PI's Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. And thank you, John. Thank you. I'm available. Okay. All righty. (laughs) 
You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 